and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. You may have noticed that this episode is a little bit shorter than my usual offerings. Uh, the reason for that is that it's deer season up here in New York, and a lot of the time that I would normally spend uh, well, researching this podcast, I have instead been sitting out in the woods uh, trying and failing to harvest a buck. Uh, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks, but expect the next episode or two uh, possibly to be a little bit shorter. Uh, this week... I want to shift back from France to the Islamic world. And as I said in the last episode, this period of uh, Islamic history is very difficult to cover because uh, all of our sources about the Umayyad Caliphate are hostile to them. That's not 100% true. We do have uh, some poetry, some scraps of people's individual diaries even, but we don't have any sort of really contemporary history that you can get your teeth into. Most of what we know about that period comes from the later Abbasid Caliphate, uh, which had uh, actually rebelled against the Umayyad Caliphate, and that's what I want to talk about this week. Um... Cracks are appearing in the Islamic world, right? For the first time, uh, up until now, Islam has been something rather unique. Uh, it has been both a religion and a political empire, right? As a matter of fact, the religious leader is also the political leader, right? The caliph, it's the same person. Uh, I'd imagine if the Pope was also the king of Europe, uh, that would sort of equate to what we're seeing here uh, in this Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, now, they haven't been totally united the entire time, right? We did talk about uh, several uh, intercenine quarrels in the Islamic world, right? They've been dealing with tribalism, right? This elite, this Arab elite, is a tribal society, and they do have their feuds and their infighting, but none of it has really threatened the unity of the caliphate on an ongoing basis. And what's going to happen now is that nationalism is going to start dividing parts of the Islamic world from each other. And nationalism is, after all, what we're talking about. So where we left off when we left the Islamic world, it was the year 661, uh, and the Egyptian governor, Muawiyah, took control of the caliphate. Now, I'm not going to dig too deeply into his successors, uh, suffice it to say that we've already hit most of the high points, right? Uh, they extended into Spain, as we described. Uh, they extended all the way uh, to uh, Constantinople, right, where the naval attack was defeated, ultimately. 
And I should clarify that the Umayyads didn't conquer their way all the way to Constantinople. Most of Anatolia, uh, the uh, Asian part of Turkey, remained in Byzantine hands, right? This was a massive siege army that just sort of pushed through uh, and tried to attack, but they didn't conquer anything. Uh, the reason the border remained relatively stable during this time period is because there's a mountain range at the eastern end of the Anatolian Peninsula. Uh, this mountain range, called the Taurus-Anti-Taurus range, uh, it forms a strategic barrier, right? We talked in the last episode about how the Pyrenees Mountains form a strategic barrier between uh, modern-day uh, France and Spain, which were separate even back then, uh, because of that geographic barrier. Uh, the Taurus-Anti-Taurus range becomes uh, the de facto border with the Umayyad Caliphate to the south and east and the Byzantines to the north and west. Uh, now, during this time period, the Caliphate, again, according to the biased stories that we are told, uh, the Caliphate is ruled by a series of mostly military leaders, which almost certainly true. That is true before this period. It's true after this period in this part of the world. So we can assume that, you know, the caliphs were indeed uh, military leaders. Uh, and then many of them essentially delegated all the rulership of the caliphate to their governors. Uh, many of them are known for throwing lavish parties uh, you see widespread uh, heavy drinking during this period. Uh, and for many reasons, uh, these caliphs in the Islamic tradition are not actually accepted as caliphs, at least not in the modern uh, tradition as I understand it. Uh, they're regarded as secular kings only. Uh, and it's not just their personal behavior, right, the, the laziness and leadership, the partying, the drunkenness, all that, uh, that makes them you know, not fit to be real caliphs. It's uh, also the fact that they were continuing to impose a land tax on uh, non-Arabs who converted to Islam. Uh, they were... What they were doing was taxing them as if they were still non-Muslims. And that flies in the face in what many of these people were sold when uh, the uh, Umayyads came in and invaded, right? Well, here's the deal, you know, you can uh, you not be a Muslim and you can pay in a little bit of extra tax, which, by the way, is still less than you're paying to your current government in most cases, and you can convert to Islam, and you'll pay even less taxes. Uh, well, these people were converting, but they were still being treated as second-class citizens. Um, and meanwhile, while the folks who are converting to Islam are really not getting much benefit uh, in the way they're treated by the state, most of the local bureaucracy in these countries, not countries, regions, uh, are uh, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, uh, who sort of retained their old posts and keep the machinery of the state running, right? Uh, 
to use a modern expression, the trains still have to run on time. And the Umayyad caliphs wanted the trains to run on time, so they kept a lot of these Christians and Zoroastrians in their old positions. And uh, meanwhile, the ruling elite uh, was not uh, broadly Muslim. It was just Arab Muslim. Uh, so these native people who were converting were kind of understandably upset about the way they were being treated in this whole system. Uh, and in addition to all of this, many Umayyad governors uh, actually actively discouraged people from converting to Islam. The problem with this and the Islamic tradition is that Islam is a missionary faith. Part of the religious duties uh, of a Muslim are to try and spread that faith. And these governors were doing the exact opposite of that. Now, the reason they were doing this was practical. Since Muslims paid lower taxes, at least some of them, <laughs> if people converted to Islam en masse, the state wouldn't have as much money to run things. So actually, the more Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians were living in your territory, the more tax revenue you got. <laughs> so... Uh, it was sort of a perverse incentive, and again, this is part of why these caliphs in the modern tradition uh, are not typically considered true caliphs. One more thing happened during this time period, right? We've had a lot of focus on the Mediterranean world, but let's not forget that this Umayyad caliphate goes quite a long way off into Asia as well. And we haven't talked about that very much. But in the year 715, under the Caliph Suleiman, the Umayyads would also reach their maximum point of expansion in the east. Right? This is the same Caliph Suleiman who died during the siege of Constantinople. Now, the Umayyads, for a couple of generations now, had held a region which at the time was called uh, Khorasan, or uh, Transoxiana, right? Transoxiana is what the Romans called it. it lit that literally means the land across the Oxus, which is a river in Central Asia that runs through uh, modern-day Turkmenistan, uh, roughly. And uh, this region had been, throughout much of history, a major trading hub, uh, this is where the city of Samarkand is, the famous city along the Silk Road. Now, at this time in history, the Silk Road had largely dried up uh, because of all the sea trade going on, right? Imagine you're trying to ship a bunch of porcelain from China to Baghdad, well, if you put all that porcelain on the backs of a bunch of donkeys and make them walk all the way across Asia, that's really, really expensive and inefficient. Right? It's much easier to rent some space in the hold on one of these trading ships and ship your porcelain that way. Right? People talk about you know, how we live in an age of globalization. And, you know, to some extent that's true in, 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 in the sense of the size and scale of the infrastructure, right? I mean, you look at a modern cargo ship, 
these ancient mariners would have uh, passed out in shock at the scale of one of those things uh, compared to the wooden sailing ships they were sailing uh, along the coasts mostly in this era, right? These, for the most part, were not even really ocean-going vessels, but still way more efficient you know, than using a bunch of donkeys or something like that. Uh, nonetheless, these, these were still populous areas along the Silk Road, right? As the trade slowed down, these people didn't just leave. They had their own infrastructure, their own uh, agriculture by that point, and they were legitimate kingdoms in their own right. Well, now they were Umayyad territory in this part of Central Asia. And from this era of Transoxiana, like Khorasan, the Umayyads under Suleiman tried to push further into an area called Fargana, which is north of India a little bit. Uh, now, this uh, principality was an Indo-Iranian kingdom, uh, one of the few places where there were still free Persian-speaking people in the world by this point. And it was not standing alone. You see, the Principality of Fargana was actually a protectorate of a state called the Angshi Protectorate. Why is the Principality of Fargana the protectorate? of a country called the Angshi Protectorate? Well, as it turns out, the Angshi Protectorate is, in turn, a protectorate of the Tang Dynasty. For those of you keeping score at home, the Tang Dynasty, that's China. That is, by far, the most powerful society in the world at this time, and it's not even close. And by the way, that's been the case through most of human history. Today, the Angshi Protectorate is uh, modern-day Xinjiang province in China, that far northwestern province. If you look at a map of China, it kind of sticks out there to the northwest. Well, that used to be the Angshi Protectorate, uh, and they used to have a protectorate on their western border called the Principality of Fargana. Uh, now... Having buffer states like this is extraordinarily common in Asian history. Right? Across most of the continent of Asia, and leaving right, the Indian subcontinent out of it, but the rest of the continent of Asia is fairly wide open. Right? Not a lot of natural barriers. Right? You've got some rivers, you've got some mountains, right? That's why I say leave India out of it, because the Himalayas are indeed an imposing geographic barrier to an invader. But much of Asia is just wide open, so how do you protect yourself? Well, you have buffer states on your border between you and your enemies. And if your enemies do decide to attack, well, those buffer states are going to absorb that brunt of that impact... And then your armies are going to have time to mobilize and come back and push out the invaders. And this is something that is even done today, right? You look at the Cold War and you look at uh, the Soviet Union, right? 
Well, they didn't want a border directly with any of the Western democracies. So what do they do? They make sure that Poland has a friendly communist government. They make sure that East Germany has a friendly communist government, right? And all of a sudden, between the NATO countries and the Soviet Union are these buffer states. And if NATO wants to attack the Soviet Union, well, they're going to have to first go through East Germany and Poland. And while they're doing that, the Soviet Union is going to have all the time in the world to put together a massive response. So yeah, protectorates, pretty common in Asian history. But what I would like to get across here is just how powerful the Tang Dynasty in particular is at this time in history. Their protectorates have protectorates. Right? That's some third-order statecraft going on there, right? <laughs> and it also means that when the Arabs, right, the Umayyads, just sort of casually push into this principality of Fargana, they have no idea what they're messing with, right? I mean, think about their history over the past uh, you know, century or so, right? Uh, since the uh, death of the Prophet Muhammad. Well, what have you had? You've had them fight uh, first against the Byzantines and the Persians, two decrepit old weak empires exhausted from fighting each other. They've knocked them over pretty quickly. Uh, they conquered the Vandal kingdoms of North Africa, right? pretty easily done. And uh, as they pushed into Spain again, uh, there were many small divided kingdoms that could easily be taken piecemeal. The Umayyads have not had to go up against anything approaching what they are messing with here, which is at this time by far the most powerful state in the world, the Tang Dynasty. So, Anyway, in 715, the Umayyads support an uprising against the king in Fargana, a man named Ikshid. Uh, he is deposed, and the Umayyads set up their own puppet Muslim ruler in Fargana, right? They are learning this Central Asian practice of creating buffer states very well, right? They are creating their own. Of course, King Ikshid doesn't take this lying down. He flees to the Angshi Protectorate and says, uh, Hey, guys, these Umayyads came in and overthrew me, and see, they set up a puppet state there right next to you. Uh, you know, if you help me get back in charge, I'll, uh, I'll keep running your buffer state for you. And uh, the Angshi respond... They send a force of 10,000 men, and they defeat the Umayyad army in battle, uh, whereupon Ikshid is reinstalled on the throne. Now again, as I said, the Arabs don't know what they're messing with, right? So Suleiman uh, dispatches another army and attacks Fargana again. Uh, and this time, his goal is to penetrate all the way to the Angshi Protectorate itself. Uh, his army besieges a city in the year 717. Uh, 
but the Angshi border commander general, uh, he leads a response with a much larger army and drives this uh, Arab force back out of Fargana again. Uh, he does this uh, with a mixed force of irregular Chinese infantry and uh, some allied steppe cavalry. And details of the battle are sketchy, but we do know that uh, not only did the Umayyads lose a lot of men, they also paid a substantial ransom uh, to recover prisoners. Now, the Angshi Protectorate would eventually fall to the Muslim Turkish Karakhanid Khanate, but that wouldn't happen for more than 200 years. And when it did happen, it would give us the Uyghur Muslim population we have today in northwest China. Right? You see stories in the news about uh, concentration camps and uh, Muslims in that part of China being treated uh, very poorly. Well, that population dates all the way back to this ninth uh, century uh, uh, Turkish invasion. And that invasion happened only because China was having a civil war. This is, again, a pattern that you will see repeated through history. Nobody conquers China unless China's in a civil war. Right, The Turks didn't conquer China, but they did conquer uh, this area, the Angshi Protectorate. And later on, when the Mongols would invade China, again, it would be during a time of civil war, uh, of division, uh, when China was not unified. When China is unified, nobody ever beats them in a war. And it seems as if the Umayyads at this point were no longer willing to try. Uh, the reason for that is mostly because of a change in leadership. See, in 717, Suleiman dies while he himself is on a military campaign against the Byzantines. Upon his death, or I should say, before his death, he declares that Umar ibn Abd al-Aziz is to be his heir. Now, Umar, uh, who has now, in 717, become the caliph, uh, he is the great-grandson of the second Caliph Umar, who we talked about two episodes ago. Uh, and in many ways, the two have a lot in common. Uh, for one thing, Umar is an accomplished general, uh, and under his rule, the Umayyads uh, ultimately reached their high-water mark in Europe, right? when they captured the French Mediterranean city of Narbonne. When I talk about this period, by the way, the main source I'm using is Hugh Kennedy's book, The Prophet and the Age of the Caliphates. This is a popular university text. It is generally well regarded, but at the same time, as I've said so many times about uh, this early Islamic period, there is much controversy uh, and some authors, other than Hugh Kennedy, who are respected authors uh, themselves, uh, do dispute Umar's military prowess. Uh, regardless, 
it doesn't really matter because once he becomes caliph, uh, he's primarily known as a pacifist. So we don't really get any historical confirmation one way or the other because we don't get to see Umar go to war. He withdraws all of the Umayyad armies that are currently invading other areas, right? He ends the siege of Constantinople. He ends the attempted invasion of uh, Anatolia. And he ends the incursion into Fargana. As many Umayyad leaders have to do, he does have to put down a couple of rebellions. And he does also continue border raiding against the Byzantines. Right? Even when the Umayyads and the Byzantines are at peace, there's almost always border raiding going on. But all of this foreign policy stuff really isn't that important during Umar's reign. See, what Umar is remembered for are his monetary and religious reforms. Uh, here's what Kennedy has to say about it. He says, quote, He saw that a major cause of friction between the Mawali, the free non-Arabs, and the government, especially in Iraq, was the system of taxation which, under al-Hajjaj's iron grip, that al-Hajjaj is a previous caliph, uh, had meant that converts to Islam continued to be taxed as if they were unbelievers. This spread resentment, and it was to counter this that Umar produced his famous fiscal rescript, an attempt to reform the financial administration. The most revolutionary aspect of this was that the Mawali were to be taxed as if they were Muslims, that is to say, that they were only to pay the sadaqwa, or alms. On the other hand, they were not allowed to sell their land to Muslims, and on conversion, their land became the property of their villages. That is to say that their lands remained karaj lands, paying the full rate of land tax. In this way, the anomaly could be removed without doing great damage to the treasury. So basically what Umar does is... Uh, attempts to resolve this situation where the non-Arab Muslims are being overtaxed, and he does it by returning much of their land to the non-Muslim non-Arabs who will have to pay taxes on it. Uh, and because the land would belong to the village, the person who converted to Islam would still be able to farm the land. I mean, he wasn't, like, throwing them off their land, okay? This was designed to help them out, and unfortunately, as we'll see, he dies shortly, so we don't really get to find out how well this would have worked. Uh, he also issued some land reforms, right? He takes these massive hunting estates that belong to the Arab nobility, and he gives them to the poor for cultivation. Again, this has uh, two effects. One, gives the poor some land to farm. And number two, it takes this land that was, you know, sort of wilderness hunting land and makes it useful farmed land, right? He's, again, developing the economy here. 
he also reforms the way in which governors are appointed. Uh, he makes the governorships significantly smaller, whereas before you had only a few governors in the Umayyad Caliphate, now you have many. And instead of appointing his own fellow tribesmen, he appoints uh, governors from all the various Arab tribes, uh, looking for the most competent administrators. Uh, and as far as the religious side of things goes, uh, he sends missionaries as far as Tibet, which was its own empire then, and even as far as China. Unfortunately, as I said, uh, he dies. Umar dies in the year 720. And he's poisoned uh, by an assassin who was hired by some tribal leaders who felt that uh, all of his reforms were uh, going against them. Right, remember the tax reforms that took a lot of the burden off of the non-Arab Muslims? Remember the changes to the governance, where the larger governorships were broken up into smaller ones and given to competent people? Remember the land reforms, where the nobility's estates were given to the poor to farm? Well, all of this had made Umar extremely unpopular with the powers that be, and that is why he is killed. According to tradition, he pardons his killer before dying and donates the blood payment to the treasury. Right, the blood money being the money that the assassin's clan had to pay to Umar's clan to compensate them for the assassination, right? This is a tribal society, after all, and even when there's an assassination, there are rules to be followed. And Umar gives that money back to the treasury, once again, dying as he had lived, unselfishly. And... While he only lived to be 37 years old, and while he was only caliph for three of those years, Umar is remembered in modern Islamic tradition as the only Umayyad caliph who is a legitimate caliph. Right? He is someone who, rather than leading as a secular ruler, truly looked after the Muslim people. Now, Umar is succeeded by a caliph named Yazid, Yazid II. Uh, there's already been an Umayyad uh, Yazid caliph. Uh, and Yazid II, unfortunately, is an old-school caliph who sits in luxury in Damascus and delegates his power to his governors. And as soon as Yazid becomes caliph, the Iraqi tribes almost immediately revolt. Uh, again, right, the Iraqis... Today they speak Arabic. Uh, a lot of Western people think of the Iraqis as Arabs. Well, they're not. I mean, many of them are today. It's complicated, right, because Arab culture has spread through all this area. But in the year 720... Iraq was certainly not an Arab-majority area. Uh, the Arabs were 
an elite leadership caste, and uh, the Iraqi tribes almost immediately revolt. A civil war breaks out. Uh, now, Yazid II puts down the revolt, and the governor he installs in Iraq is particularly tyrannical, which uh, unfortunately only puts off some trouble until later. Uh, and Yazid II uh, himself dies four years after becoming caliph in the year of 724. Uh, however, during this time, he's reversed most of Umar's reforms, uh, including the tax reforms, uh, which is you know, a large part of why these Iraqi tribes revolted. And Yazid is succeeded in 724 by his younger brother, a man named Hisham. Now, little is known of Hisham's early life. Uh, he had been an opponent of Umar's, but he seems to have maintained his status in the military. So we can gather that he's pretty savvy uh, diplomatically and politically behind the scenes. Now, Hisham is remembered as a capable administrator. There's virtually zero civil unrest during his reign, uh, but the treasury is in trouble. Kennedy tells us that there wasn't really any central accounting, right? When we think of uh, any modern country today, right, uh, you have a government office that is specifically responsible for managing and keeping track of revenue, right? Um, in the U.S., we have the Department of the Treasury, and pretty much any country is going to have something equivalent to that. Well, the Umayyad Empire, Caliphate, at this time, did not have that. Uh, and Hisham fixes this by putting uh, a minister in charge of making sure that uh, taxes are being collected as they should. Uh, another problem, which he isn't really able to fix for complicated tribal and internal political reasons, is that different provinces have vastly different tax rules. Uh, so uh, some provinces have to forward their tax income to the capital. Uh, on the principle that the caliph should be in charge of having all of this tax revenue from the uh, caliphate to care for the whole caliphate. Uh, other provinces uh, are allowed to operate on the principle that the local Muslim people should take care of themselves uh, so their tax revenue stays local and does not get forwarded to the central government. Well, as you can imagine, if you're in one of those uh, provinces where your tax money gets forwarded to the capital, and then the capital's spending money all over the whole empire, including in places that don't send tax money to the capital, well, you're getting the short end of the stick. Right? This is another cause of all of this unrest that keeps happening in Iraq, right? They're one of those provinces where their tax revenue gets forwarded to the state, and they have no control over their... Uh, local uh, spending. Now, in addition to causing uh, some unrest, this tax policy also 
is causing trouble for the central administration, right? Imagine trying to run an empire when only half the empire is paying taxes uh, to the central government. It becomes quite the challenge. Uh, and as I said, for very complicated internal political reasons, Hisham really wasn't able to do much about the uh, taxation inequity in the provinces, but what he was able to do was raise more money for the central treasury. Uh, and he did this by uh, engaging in massive building and irrigation projects. Uh, he builds huge estates in Syria and Iraq in areas that were barren desert and has them irrigated and turned into fertile cropland. And again, remember, in these times, pretty much everybody in society is involved in agriculture, and if you're going to grow your economy, you've got to literally grow a lot of food. And Hisham does that. And he also, because he owns all of these estates, is also able to personally raise a ton of money for the central government. As a matter of fact, by the end of his reign, the central government is earning more income every year from Hisham's estates than it is from all the taxes in the provinces, those of them that are actually paying taxes in the first place. And another thing Hisham does is in the year 741, uh, eventually, uh, he would ban non-Muslims from most government posts. Uh, he did this again for internal political reasons, right? Uh, we talked about uh, a lot of the Muslims being upset that uh, they had converted and they were qualified and ready for the job, and here are all these Christians and uh, Jews and Zoroastrians. Well, now those positions can be filled by Muslims, but in turn now uh, you had a uh, very upset non-Muslim population now that they had been locked out of this part of uh, the economy. And that would cause a lot of damage long-term. Anyway, when Hisham first takes power, right, going back to, to 724, where, uh, where Yazid II died, uh, when Hisham first takes power, uh, he's facing a few threats on the foreign front, right? We've been talking about a lot of what's going on inside the Umayyad Caliphate. Well, outside the Umayyad Caliphate, events were not standing still. Uh, right, you had the Battle of Tours uh, in 732, uh, for instance, right, uh, where Charles Martel uh, smashed an Umayyad incursion into the Frankish kingdom. And that's where we are in history uh, now in the Umayyad Caliphate, but over in the Caucasus, way on the other end of this giant empire, right, in the Caucasus, uh, the mountains between the Black Sea uh, and the Caspian Sea, uh, the Umayyads are being continually attacked by a nomadic people uh, called the Khazars. This is one of the many Turkic peoples that at this time uh, lives in Central Asia. Now, part of the Caucasus is currently held by the Umayyads, Part of the Caucasus is uh, independent uh, Armenia. 
uh, I should say only nominally independent. Armenia for some time has been a de facto client state of the Umayyads, and Hisham dispatches a young general named Marwan to make this arrangement uh, permanent. Uh, Marwan begins by setting up a base in Armenia, and he ingratiates himself with the Armenian king by uh, driving out all the family members of a rival dynasty that have been trying to get the king deposed. Uh, so the king is very pleased with Marwan, very happy with the Umayyads for securing his reign, uh, and uh, essentially allows the Umayyads free reign. And not only did Marwan ingratiate himself with the Armenian king, he also ingratiated himself with the Armenian people. Uh, he makes sure that his soldiers do not harass the local people, uh, allows them to run their own affairs, uh, follow their Christian or Jewish religions, and uh, he pays his local followers, right? He starts hiring people uh, to uh, serve in his army from the local area, and he pays them very well. Uh, and truth be told, it does not take a lot of convincing to convince a whole bunch of Armenians to join the Umayyad uh, army right now, because the Armenians are also being harassed, attacked, and raided by the same Khazar Turks who are being such a problem for the Umayyads. And over the next six years, Marwan would not only drive the Khazars out of the Caucasus, but his joint Arab-Armenian army would push the Khazars all the way back to the lower Volga. That's in the southwest of modern-day Ukraine, okay? He pushes them quite a ways back from the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, and due to this, Marwan becomes Hisham's favorite general. Uh, he's involved in several campaigns throughout Hisham's reign. While Marwan is doing all of this uh, in the Caucasus, uh, in the mid-730s, there are similar Turkish nomads uh, attacking the uh, region of Khorasan, right? Uh, Transoxiana, this region we talked about in Central-day Asia in uh, modern-day uh, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Uh, and these Turkic attacks are threatening the city of Samarkand, among others, but particularly Samarkand being the major population center uh, in the area. And uh, there needed to be some response to this. Uh, the local governor, uh, he is, you know, keeping up on what Marwan's been doing in Armenia, and in 737, uh, he manages to put together a joint Arab-Iranian army of 20,000 men, and uh, they defeat these Turkish attackers and push them out of Khorasan, uh, further north into Central Asia. The next major challenge that the Caliph Hisham had to face was uh, in the year 740. Now, in that year, 
there is a Berber rebellion in North Africa. Now, the Berber people are the native peoples of North Africa, right? The, the Romans called them the Numidians, but the Berber people traditionally live a little ways inland, uh, right? They're not traditionally a seafaring people so much as a uh, pastoral people. So when the Arab Muslims first conquered North Africa, they didn't really conquer much territory that would actually really be considered Berber territory, per se. The Arabs were interested in conquering all the coastal settlements, right, where these Vandal kingdoms had been in parts of North Africa, and other kingdoms had been in other parts of North Africa, but these were all coastal kingdoms again, right? Uh, this was the Mediterranean world. The Arabs didn't really care about conquering deep into the Atlas Mountains. There was nothing there other than some Berbers and their flocks. But what the Umayyads did do throughout this whole period was raid those Berber territories for slaves. Needless to say, the Berbers resented this. Uh, for one thing, many of them had converted to Islam, which, again, this is something that has been problematic for all of these caliphs, and it's a reason most of them are, all of them other than Umar, really, are not considered valid uh, caliphs, right? Here are some people who converted to Islam, and because they're not Arabs, you can enslave them, right? I mean, that's chattel slavery, and make no mistake, chattel slavery is a special kind of evil in the history of this world, right? It's what we had in the American South. And don't mistake me, right? Slavery has been a thing through all of human history, but there have been different levels of slavery, so to speak. For instance, in the Roman Empire, in most periods, slave has had a day off every week, and they could work on their own time and save their own money and even buy their own freedom. Now, I'm not saying anyone wants to be a slave, but, you know, if you had to be a slave, it would probably be a slave who's a mathematics teacher to the children of a wealthy Roman and can tutor other rich people's kids on their day off, and, you know, at least in ten years you can be free, but this kind of chattel slavery you're never going to be free, right? Even if you converted to Islam and did all the things that your rulers are telling you you are supposed to do. Understandable that the Berbers uh, are a little bit upset at this point at the way they're being treated by the Umayyads. Uh, and to make matters even more inflammatory, uh, they have been agitated by uh, Quararij missionaries. Now, the Quararij uh, are Iraqi Muslims, right? Remember the Iraqis always uh, revolting here against the Caliphate. Uh, the Quararij actually reject all the Caliphs. Uh, they live as raiding nomads, uh, raiding 
other Muslims who they don't consider to be real Muslims, and they get the Berbers who are already really, really, really upset and on the verge of rebellion anyway, the Quraraj missionaries push them over the edge. Hisham dispatches an army to put down the Berber rebellion. And over the course of the year 741, this army marches across North Africa, uh, encounters a Berber army, is defeated, and the survivors continue to march the rest of the way across North Africa all the way to Spain, where they just sort of settle down and start living. In 742, Hisham gets another army together and dispatches it. Uh, and that army is victorious against the Berbers, but only to a point. Uh, the Umayyads only reconquer land as far as Tunisia. Right. Everything uh, west of that is now in Berber hands. So we were talking about cracks forming in the Islamic world, well, here's your first major fissure. Uh, you have a truly independent Berber people who are also Muslims. The effect of this is that Spain is now cut off from the rest of the Umayyad Empire. Uh, right when you think of uh, the, the distance from Africa to Europe, well, the closest point is uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, right? What the Romans called the Pillars of Hercules, that area between Gibraltar and Morocco that on a clear day you can see across. So it's very easy to move people across the Straits of Gibraltar, to move material across the Straits of Gibraltar. It's a little bit harder when you've got to go all the way from Tunisia. But ironically, after the collapse of the Umayyad Empire, as we'll see, uh, the territory in Spain remained Umayyad. And that territory would actually go on to have a golden age of its own uh, with uh, significant uh, discoveries in astronomy and mathematics that are still important to this day. But here we are in 742. Hisham has just had to raise not one, but two armies to kind of, sort of, put down this rebellion and take back some territory. And the empire is tired. Right? This has put a strain on the Umayyad treasury and the manpower. And it also led to even more resentment in the remaining provinces, right? Um, the Iraqis, who were already unreliable subjects, because of the strain on, on manpower from these wars, uh, many Iraqis had to be recruited into the army, and they were armed and then spread throughout the empire, where you can imagine if there's going to be a local rebellion, well... Iraqi troops in the area may just be sympathetic. All right, uh, your, your imperial troops may not be so imperial. Another effect of these wars was 
uh, that many of the subject people were now armed, right? Uh, in addition to Iraqis, you have the Armenians, right? Up there with Marwan. You have the Persian people uh, in northern Iran and Transoxiana and Khorasan, right? Who have been armed to fight against these Turkish uh, invaders. Uh, for now, Hisham's wealthy estates are able to keep the government solvent, but you can clearly see that trouble is brewing and that this is a very tenuous situation. And by now, Hisham is getting old. And he's thinking about the succession, right? Who's going to be the caliph and lead the Muslim people after he dies? Now, when Hisham first became caliph, part of the agreement was that when he died, Yazid's II son, Al-Walid, would be the next caliph. Now, here's what Hugh Kennedy has to say about this agreement. He says, quote, Hisham resented this, not just because he favored his own line, but because he had sons who were competent, sober, and hardworking like their father. This Al-Walid was not. The playboy of the Umayyads par excellence, he was a talented poet, an enthusiast for architecture, palaces, not mosques, and a heavy drinker. Unquote. So, he does not exactly sound like the model of Muslim piety, but he also doesn't sound like a particularly well-qualified caliph, so... Uh, Hisham tries to get out of this agreement that Al-Walid is going to become caliph. But he's not able to get out of it, right? And to understand why, you have to understand that a political agreement in the Umayyad Caliphate was a little bit more than just a political agreement, the entire leadership was part of the Umayyad tribe, right? There were different clans within that tribe that competed and vied for power. But, right, there's a reason we call it the Umayyad Caliphate. So a political agreement is not just political, it's an agreement between family. So even some of Hisham's staunchest allies will not support him in going back on this agreement. Right? Al-Walid is supposed to be the heir, and he will become the next caliph when Hisham dies. And in the year 743, Hisham does die. Al-Walid becomes caliph, and Kennedy says, quote, Al-Walid II fulfilled Hisham's worst fears. His conduct was increasingly irresponsible, he seldom went to Damascus, and paid little heed to normal administrative affairs while squandering vast sums on ambitious, if seldom finished, palace projects. Unquote. Uh, now this is not to say that Al-Walid is ignorant of his own interests. Uh, he does move quickly to secure his own position and the succession of his own sons to the caliphate. 
among other transgressions, he has Hisham's son Suleiman publicly flogged, and worse, he actually executes several other potential heirs. Now, within a year, there's an open rebellion in Damascus, in the capital. Right, This whole we're-all-family thing cuts both ways, right? If Al-Walid is going to do this to his own family members, right? even if they are distant cousins, if he's willing to execute them to make sure that his own son is secure in the throne, well, he needs to be stopped, because he might kill anybody. And a drunken city guard commander, as it so happens, fails to take action that night, uh, and the rebels take over the city. They, within a few days, hunt down Al-Walid at his country estate outside of Damascus, and according to tradition, oddly enough, he's actually sitting and reading his Koran when he's killed. Now, how that jives with this image of a particular impious leader uh, that Al-Walid has, I'm not really sure, uh, but nonetheless, it's kind of an interesting detail, right? One imagines, maybe, as he realizes that death is coming for him, he suddenly becomes really religious uh, in his final moments. Who knows? Maybe it's just a story. Either way, uh, in the year 744, the leader of the rebels, a man named Yazid III, is proclaimed caliph. And he agrees to redress the grievances of both sides in this rebellion, both of the major clans. And he makes several changes in leadership. And the reason he's able to uh, gather support is because he also agrees that if he does not follow through on his promises, he will be deposed and executed. And it seems like he was genuinely going about doing all the things he promised to do when six months into his reign, he dies, uh, unable to complete his commitments, and he's succeeded by his younger brother, Ibrahim, uh, who does not follow through on Yazid's commitments. And because of this, uh, in the year 744, uh, Marwan launches a rebellion from his base of power in Armenia. Right, he's been sitting up there. Uh, you know, at this point, he's had eight years of peace to sort of build his power base, and uh, he defeats Ibrahim in the field. And uh, in December of 744, Marwan himself is appointed caliph. Right, the Romans had the year of the five emperors. The Umayyads didn't quite get to five, but they did have three in the year 744. Now, Marwan has trouble from day one. For one thing, none of these old resentments have really been resolved, right? It's uh, been a matter of uh, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, but in addition to that, Marwan is also not fully Arab. Uh, 
his mother was a Kurdish slave. And as you can already tell uh, from a lot of other things we've talked about today, uh, the Umayyad Empire was pretty racist. And the idea of a Kurd as caliph did not sit well with much of the Arab leadership. And almost immediately upon becoming caliph, Marwan faces not one but two rebellions. Um, both of them, fortunately, are in Iraq. Cheese again, with the rebellions in Iraq. Uh, one of them is a tribal rebellion, uh, right from these angry Arab leaders I was talking about. Uh, the other is a religious rebellion led by those Khwarajis, right? Uh, the people we talked about who think that they are the only true Muslims and that none of the caliphs are legitimate. And while this is going on, Marwan also has to put down a series of rebellions in Syria. Now, Syria at this time is the political and financial heart of the Umayyad Caliphate, so Marwan has to deal with that situation first. Uh, and he does it by at first gently putting down rebellions, and then in the year 746, uh, after a particularly nasty uh, rebellion in the city of Homs, Marwan orders a purge of all the opposition. He's done being forgiving, and many of the Arab leaders in the region are just executed outright. Enough is enough. But it does stabilize the situation. Once that's done, Marwan is able to turn his attention to the Iraqi situation. Uh, and in 748, Marwan's generals, right, leading this joint Arab-Kurdish army, put down a combined army of Khwarizm and tribal rebels. And finally, the empire is again at peace. But Hugh Kennedy says of this peace, quote, By the spring of 748, peace was restored. Marwan II was caliph, while Yazid bin Umar bin Hubara in Wazit was his governor of the east. But it was the peace of exhaustion, the peace of the desert. Plague and famine and a terrible earthquake followed in Syria in the wake of the wars. It was a devastated country. Power now lay in the hands of men from the Jazeera and the mountains of Armenia. Unquote. And what Kennedy means by that, uh, the Jazeera and the mountains of Armenia, is uh, Marwan's joint Arab-Kurdish army. But peace only lasts for a very short period of time. Uh, in early 748, uh, even as Marwan is just finishing with this Iraqi rebellion, uh, another local rebellion breaks out in uh, Khorasan. Uh, this rebellion is a little bit different. Uh, it's led by a figure named Abu Muslim, and he is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. 
he claims closer lineage than the uh, Umayyad lineage, right? So he wants to make someone uh, from his own lineage caliph, not necessarily himself. Uh, Abu rallies the local people in Khorasan and uh, drives the Umayyad governor out. And the obvious aspect of this rebellion is clearly religious, right? Abu Muslim is fighting to ensure that the Prophet's rightful heirs are in charge of the caliphate. But there is also a strong nationalist element here, right? While the Umayyads had been in control of Khorasan, they had uh, ordered a Khmer Rouge-style purge of all the literate Persians, right? Remember, before the Umayyads were there, that was a Persian area. And the Umayyads basically tried to stamp out uh, the Persian written language, and they were nearly successful. Uh, so, in Khorasan, uh, right, while they may have been tolerating Umayyad rule uh, while the empire was strong, as soon as these cracks appear, uh, the Khorasan people are rising up for new leadership. And with the rise of this rebellion, Marwan's gains completely collapse. Uh, right? Resentful Iraqis from this rebellion, he has just put down in Iraq while well, they just join the new rebellion. Some major Iraqi cities defect. Right? You have literally uh, local governors defecting. Uh, and by October of 749, the rebels hold the capital of Kufa. Uh, that's the provincial capital in Iraq. And at that point, they proclaim uh, a descendant of the prophet uh, as the new caliph. Uh, this is not Abu Muslim. This is Abu I Abbas al-Safa as the new caliph. And this transition marks the beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate, named after Abu il-Abbas. In response to all of this, Marwan does make an effort to retain the Caliphate. He rallies his core supporters uh, and meets Abu in battle in the spring of 750, and his army is shattered, as is the case Throughout this story, we're not getting a ton of details about, uh, you know, what was going on on the battlefield and the tactical level, uh, right? Was he outnumbered? Uh, were his troops tired? Did he just get outgeneraled? Uh, we don't know. But regardless, uh, his troops are routed, those who are left. Uh, he attempts to seek refuge in Syria, but he's driven out, right? Remember, Marwan just purged a whole bunch of the leading Arabs, well, you think they're going to take him in now when he's on the ropes? Uh, and he flees again to Egypt. There are similar local resentments there, not quite as major as the resentments in Syria, but enough for some local people to betray Marwan to Abu's army. And in 749, Abu il-Abbas defeats Marwan in battle 
and Marwan dies fighting. But he dies, and the Caliphate is now under Abbasid rule. And again, we should point out you know, the Abbasids rule this whole contiguous empire, right, from Anatolia to uh, Transoxiana, but they don't rule over Spain anymore, right? Now you have yet another division in the Muslim world, right? You've got these uh, um, Berber kingdoms in North Africa. You have the Abbasid Caliphate, and then you have the remaining Ubayid Caliphate uh, in Spain. There is also a uh, former governorate in Spain that is its own independent Muslim kingdom. There's a few other things going on as well, but we've covered the major uh, divisions that happen at this point. And at the end of the Umayyad Caliphate, it would behoove us to remember that it did have several accomplishments, right? All of our sources are a bit skewed, and we hear pretty much every negative thing we can about the Umayyads. They did have a few accomplishments here, right? Uh, for one thing, Arabic was now the lingua franca of most of the Middle and Near East, right? Uh, when you think about much of this period in Europe, right, uh, one thing that sort of caused this European identity to develop was the fact that everybody, at least the educated classes, could all communicate in Latin, right? Uh, well, over in the uh, Umayyad Caliphate, now the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, the educated classes could communicate in Arabic, right? You had a large, contiguous area uh, where culture and knowledge could flow freely back and forth. Uh, and not only that, but uh, the Islamic faith had actually spread to the east at this point beyond the bounds of the caliphate. Uh, there was a uh, Islamic kingdom in what is now Pakistan, and uh, trade had spread Islamic enclaves all throughout the Spice Islands. Uh, those islands all throughout uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, where so much ancient trade and even modern trade, uh, to, to be frank, uh, takes place. These were not, at this point, full-fledged kingdoms, right? But they were enclaves of Islamic culture and tradition. And uh, the faith also spread to East Africa, and as far away as China, there was, a, as, as a matter of fact, there was a uh, Muslim riot uh, in the city of Canton that destroyed one of the city quarters, uh, and that led to uh, the Muslims being expelled uh, from Canton, right? The, uh, the Tang dynasty had had quite enough of that, thank you. Uh, another accomplishment of the Umayyad Caliphate uh, was that it created a self-contained civilization, right? Uh, by this point, it was separate from the Mediterranean world. I mean, sure, it 
had territory on the Mediterranean, but it did not rely on that trade across the Mediterranean as its primary economic engine. Right now, a big part of this, obviously, was that uh, the Umayyad Caliphate conquered the uh, Persian Empire, and it sort of had you know a pre-built-in bureaucracy and government, and that could sort of be built out and uh, you know transported back to Arabia and other parts of the empire. But you know, at the same time building that kind of bureaucracy, so to speak, from the ground up in many of these provinces is not an easy task. And uh, the Umayyad Caliphate uh, did a lot of development, right, in these barren areas where you know, previously there was no agriculture or poor agriculture. Now you had much more farming, uh, particularly in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, right? And this new Islamic civilization would have a golden age over roughly the first 80 years of the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, I don't want to get into a blow-by-blow -blow narrative history of everything that happened during the Abbasid Caliphate. I'm trying to stick to uh, parts of this story that relate to the theme of this season, right? Nationalism. And uh, when the remaining Abbasid Empire is happy and together, well, there's not a lot of nationalism going on. Uh, but that isn't to say that everything was static during this time period, right? Uh, for one thing, uh, the Abbasids would conquer the island of Cyprus. That's way in the eastern Mediterranean, right off the coast of Anatolia. And during this time period, uh, the Abbasids very much promoted religious conversion amongst their subjects, right? Remember, for most of their history, the Umayyads actually preferred to have a relatively small Muslim population in proportion to the total uh, because it meant a larger tax base. The Abbasids were a little bit more uh, religiously devout and they genuinely wanted uh, as many of their subjects as possible to convert to Islam. Depending on where you are in history, uh, this does sometimes cause unrest, obviously, amongst the Christian and Jewish populations in the uh, area. Uh, but even more severely, it led to uh, persecution of the Zoroastrians. Now, the Zoroastrians are people who follow an ancient, ancient faith that uh, predates both Christianity and Islam. Uh, it's a monotheistic faith. Uh, like Christianity and Islam, there's one god, uh, and in the Zoroastrian tradition, that god is named Ahura Mazda. Now, the difference between uh, the Zoroastrians as opposed to the Christians and the Jews is that... Uh, the Christians and the Jews worship the same God as the Muslims, right? Um, for instance, the uh, book of Genesis 
is held sacred in all three traditions. Uh, whereas the Zoroastrian faith has a different uh, narrative altogether. It's, it's a completely different religion. Uh, so under the Abbasids, uh, the Christians and Jews remained protected, right? Uh, as long as they paid the extra tax, they were protected in uh, Muslim society. Uh, but the Zoroastrians no longer were protected. Uh, and during this time, uh, many, many Zoroastrians were killed for their faith. Others were enslaved. And to this day, uh, the population of Zoroastrians in the world has never recovered. There's, I want to say, less than 200,000 Zoroastrians in the world anymore uh, from this great religious tradition uh, that goes back millennia. During this uh, golden age of the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, there's also one ruler I should talk about a little bit, just because uh, he's so famous. And that ruler is Harun al-Rashid. Uh, now, we actually uh, can read about him in Einhard, right? If you remember Einhard, uh, that friend of Charlemagne's from our last episode who wrote his uh, very uh, personal biography of Charlemagne, uh, at one point, Einhard uh, actually uh, gets sent by Charlemagne as an emissary to visit Harun al-Rashid uh, in the year 802. And here's what Einhard uh, says in his chronicle. He says, quote, uh, With Aaron, king of the Persians... Right, you gotta love that right there. He calls him Aaron, king of the Persians. Well, it's close enough, with Aaron, king of the Persians, who ruled over all the east with the exception of India, he entertained so harmonious a friendship, he meaning Charlemagne, entertained so harmonious a friendship that the Persian king valued his favor before the friendship of all the kings and princes in the world, and held that it alone deserved to be cultivated with presents and titles. When, therefore, the ambassadors of Charles, whom he had sent with offerings to the most holy sepulcher of our Lord and Savior, and to the place of his resurrection, came to the Persian king and proclaimed the kindly feelings of their master, he not only granted all they asked, but also allowed that the sacred place of our salvation to be reckoned as part of the possessions of the Frankish king. He further sent ambassadors of his own along with those of Charles upon the return journey and forwarded immense presents to Charles, robes and spices and the other rich products of the East, and a few years earlier he had sent him at his request an elephant, which was then the only one that he had. Unquote. It's interesting to read about the friendship, almost, between these two great men, right? They never met each other in person, but... Clearly, they have a little bit more than just a working relationship. And the other significant thing to take out of this account from Einhardt is that what the ambassadors were asking about was continued uh, access to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which 
is a sacred place in Christianity, and, and many Christian pilgrims would go there. And, you know, according to Einhart, uh, the uh, Harun al-Rashid simply said, well, sure, you can, you can visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Well, heck, you can have it. And while this arrangement for the time remains amicable, eventually disputes over Christian access to sites in the Holy Land would become the proximate cause of the Crusades. But that would not happen for a couple of centuries yet. In the meantime, the uh, Abbasids under Harun al-Rashid are once again pushing east, right? We started out today talking about the Umayyads pushing east and tangling with the Chinese. Well, Harun al-Rashid actually makes an alliance with the Tang dynasty against the Tibetans. Uh, the Tibetans had a fairly substantial empire at the time, uh, and both the Arabs and the Chinese uh, chipped away at that for a while. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there were even embassies exchanged uh, regularly for several decades between the Abbasid Caliphate and the Tang Dynasty. And we've talked so far about Harun al-Rashid being kind of a nice guy and a diplomat, but he can also be ruthless. At one point, the Byzantine emperor, Nikephoros I, stops paying his tribute to the Abbasids. And furthermore, he actually demands tribute. And al-Rashid says, quote, In the name of God the Most Merciful, from Amir al-Mu'amin Harun al-Rashid, commander of the faithful to Nikephoros, dog of the Romans, thou shalt not hear, thou shalt behold my reply. And he promptly leads an army into Anatolia and sacks several Byzantine settlements, forcing Nikephoros to confront him in battle where he defeats the Byzantines and forces them to pay even more tribute. So, a little bit of a badass, this Harun al-Rashid. But he would preside over the last days of the Abbasid Caliphate's golden age. Because when he died in 809, he made the same mistake that several... Umayyads and Romans and other people we've talked about throughout this series have made. And that is that he divided the empire between his two sons. Needless to say, within a few months, this leads to a civil war between the two brothers. Again, this is not a narrative history, so the details are not terribly important. The important part is that the war lasts for 24 years, until the year 833, depending on how you count it exactly. Some historians say it ended earlier, uh, when the second brother was defeated, but there was still fighting until 833. And at any rate... Uh, 
this fighting, this 24 years of fighting, depleted Abbasid manpower. And it forced both sides in the Civil War to hire Turkic mercenaries. Now, we've already encountered some Turkic peoples in this episode, right? The Turks are steppe nomads, right? The, the word Turk is a broad name for a large ethnic group containing many distinct peoples, right, at this time in history. And the Turks, in this time period, right around 833, would play a similar role to the role the Huns played in the late Roman Empire, right? Uh, sometimes they were enemies of the Abbasids, but other times... Abbasids would hire them out as mercenaries, and they would fight on both sides during the Civil War. And by the end, much of the army was made up of uh, Hunnic mercenaries, right? Again, all those casualties uh, depleting the native-born Abbasid manpower. And throughout all this time, uh, religious and local tensions are continuing to simmer. Again, all the issues that first the Umayyads and now the Abbasids have been dealing with, right? They, ju they don't just go away. And while this golden age of wealth and prosperity kept those tensions down, 24 years of civil war brings them all boiling to the surface. And we'll talk about that in the next episode, part two of The Rise and Fall of the Third Caliphate. Just a reminder, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always reach the show at at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter. That's D-A-N-T-O-L-E-R Podcast on Twitter. And you can also find me at Dan Toller, that's T-O-L-E-R, on Facebook. In addition to that, if you want to send an email to the show, whether to give some input or request a different topic, Go ahead and shoot me a line at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. If you just stumbled across this episode and you'd like to find more episodes, they're available on just about every podcast service. You can find relevant history on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and several others. Just search for Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T, History. And if you happen to prefer YouTube, the show is on there. Well, just don't expect any fancy videos. Finally, if you'd like to keep up with my blog, which may or may not ever be updated, you can find the show at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks.